Would you turn with me this morning to Jude? The last book before Revelation. And we're going to read the entirety of the letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers 
following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today as your beloved church. We ask that you would break our hearts and that you would heal our hearts, that you would remove our hearts of stone that rebel against you and replace them with hearts of flesh. We ask for this supernatural work, the changing of a sinner into a saint. And we ask that um, Providence would know today that they're beloved, called, and kept, and that you would work in their hearts mercy mercy for one another and that you show them the grandeur of the mercy that they have received. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. <clears throat> We're in a war. There's a war raging all around us for your identity. Who are you this morning? Who is the world trying to tell you you are this morning? Is it based on politics? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Is it based on your worldly class? Upper class, middle class, lower class, no class? Is it based on what you've done? Are you successful or are you a, a total burnout? Who are you this morning? Is it your job? Jude has two answers for us. He says that you are either beloved, waiting with eager expectation the mercy of our Lord Jesus, or you are ungodly, and you're going to stand and fall on your own merit 
when Christ returns. In order to unpack Jude, I'm going to do a brief um, context of Jude. So I'll go, we'll go through it uh, more briefly through most of it. But then once we come to Jude 17 to 23, this is going to be where we focus in and um, get more specific. But uh, Jude is a letter written to a church that's under siege from the inside. This isn't unlike the story of the Trojan horse where the Greek army was under was sieging the city of Troy for 10 years. Then they couldn't get in, so they they did a they pulled a fake. They moved their fleet away. They left a horse. Troy pulled the horse in, and you guys know the rest of the story. There was people inside the horse that came out in the night, opened the city gates, and uh, the city of Troy was destroyed. This is what's happening, not with horses, but with people in the um, at the church that Jude is writing to. People in verse 4 have crept in unnoticed and are leading people away from the original gospel that was given to the church. And Jude spends time in his letter revealing the character and the coming judgment of these false teachers and then directing the true church on how to move forward. So there's two, two people that he's speaking to in this church or in, in this letter. So we'll first describe these false teachers that have crept in unnoticed into the church that Jude is warning them about. In verse 4, it says that they're perverting the gospel of God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The false teachers were taking the forgiveness and grace of God and using it as a license to pursue their desires of sexual immorality. And Jude condemns this by reminding his listener of God's judgment in three situations. So starting in verse 5, Um, it's the people of Israel who were destroyed in the desert after God saved them from Egypt. In verse 6, it's on the angels who didn't remain in their own place of authority, but left their proper dwelling. These he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And finally, in verse 7, it's the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were likewise indulging in sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desire to serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8 says, Yet in like manner. These people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This phrase, in like manner, it connects the actions of the false teachers to these three judgments mentioned 
and expands on the description of the false teacher's behavior. They're using their dreams as authoritative for prescribing behavior. They're defiling the flesh, a reference to the indulgence of their sexual immorality. They're rejecting authority, which mirrors the end of verse 4 that says, denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And they're blaspheming the glorious ones, which, which is an attempt to exert authority over principalities and powers, but not in the authority of Jesus, rather using their own authority. Verse 12 and 13 say, They're hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now the love feast is referring to the Lord's Supper. And a reef is exactly what you think it is. It's a, it's a, 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 a body of rock um, underneath the water that the water breaks upon. Um, which is an imminent danger to boats. And just like it's an imminent danger to the ships, it's an imminent danger to the congregation um, as they sit there and they partake with them. They partake with fear, without, sorry, without fear and self-examination. They're leaders who only nourish themselves and not the flock. They're visible as a cloud is, yet not giving to the church the water that brings life. These people are guided not by the truth that was given once and for all to the saints, rather swept along by the winds of culture and desire. They are fruitless trees when they ought to be bearing, twice dead, because they bear no fruit and are uprooted in response. They are wild waves of the sea. Isaiah 57.20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. In the case of Jude, instead of mire and dirt, it says that they're tossing up their own shame. They're described as wandering stars. The Greek phrase, asteris plan- planetai, please don't criticize my Greek, I don't. <laughs> it's not my first language. Um, is the normal phrase for planets which were thought in those times to be stars. So they wouldn't follow the normal course in the sky that a star would follow. They would wander. And that's what he's he's talking about, these false teachers, is they wander from the foundation that was given once and for all to the saints. These false teachers are wandering away from that and called wandering stars. And the judgment and gloom of utter darkness for them has been uh, reserved forever. If that's not enough, in verse 16 it says, they're grumblers, malcontents, 
following their own sinful desires, loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So this is the environment to which Jude is writing. This is a description of the people, the false teachers, that have come into the congregation unnoticed, and they're leading people away from the foundation that was given once and for all to the saints. That's a pattern in Jude. He talks about this foundation that's already been laid, and it doesn't get laid again. It's been laid one time. And so the dreams that these false teachers are having aren't authoritative in laying down another foundation or changing the foundation that's been laid. It's already done. And so, as we read you, there's, there's certain ear-tickling curiosities that we're, we're not going to get into. So, I would encourage you to, to study Jude on your own. Um, but for us, let's start in verse 17. It says, but you... So these two words, he moves from describing and condemning the false teachers to this point, and he moves the focus to the church. From the actions of the ungodly to the direction of the church, but more specifically than that, he says, the beloved church. Twice loved prior to this point in the letter, and twice more reminded before the doxology. Jude called the people beloved in verse 1. He called them beloved in verse 3. He calls them beloved in verse 17. He calls them beloved in verse 20. And this isn't just a sentimental phrase, as we might love something. Being loved of God is different than us loving pizza. Being loved of God is different than our capacities to love things in this world, even our capacity to love other people. So when we think of the word beloved, we need to set aside the flippant use of the word love that we do every day. Man, I just love this water. And we need to reorientate ourselves. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. We need to think of love first in the context of God's actions towards us. And second, in the outflow of that love to others. First, in God's actions towards us, by which we know love. And then second, in that outflow to other people. In Jude 1, Jude says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, and kept. These three things work together in the life of a Christian. Because you are loved 
of God. You are called and kept. You cannot be called and not kept and loved. Or kept and not called and loved. Or loved and not called and kept. All three of those go together. Beloved, called, and kept. Romans 9, 11 and 12 says, And though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob was loved and called and kept. Would you turn with me to Ephesians 1.4? Ephesians 1.4 Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters. We are loved and called kept. Turn with me to John 10, 27. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Beloved, here is a picture of the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep who calls you, my sheep hear my voice. He's calling to his sheep and keeps you in the palm of his hand. And not only in the palm of Jesus's hand, but in the palm of the Father's hand as well. And this is a picture of calling and keeping that is absolutely authoritative. 1 John 3, 16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. To be beloved of God is a love with a cost beyond measure. Do we consider this cost and privilege 
when we hear the word beloved? Or do we think God would use this phrase like we do? For pizza. For the weather. For a house or fill in the blank. So who are you this morning? In Jesus Christ, you are beloved and called and kept. Nothing can alter this. Nothing can change this. No winds of culture, no or sorry, I lost my place. No winds of culture or waves of man foaming up can change the fact that in Jesus Christ we are loved and called and kept. To a church in turmoil in the face of the hardship, Jude tells them each time he addresses them that they're beloved. He wants them to remember this. The false teachers had no power or authority to alter this. Angels and demons have no power to pluck you from the hand of God. And Satan himself, the accuser, is rebuked by the costly blood of Jesus Christ. This is reason for rejoicing. There is another keeping. The fourth verse of Jude says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. Romans 9.13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jude 14 says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If you have not turned to Jesus Christ, with your whole heart, in repentance and faith, there is nothing to wait for but the just judgment of God. But there is good news. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. And 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Now is the right time. We will either be found beloved and called and kept or standing on your own merit and lacking the holiness and purity that God requires. This is only found in Jesus Christ and we must look to him. There are four things that the beloved church uh, is called to as we go past verse 17. The church is told that they must remember that these things were predicted beforehand by the apostles. So the first thing they're called to do is remember. They're told to look to the prophetic word as their hope. It's a process that reorientates us from thinking like the world to being, from being worried like the world is worried to trusting in a sovereign God who's already written it down. The world would have you believe that all things are random, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and that the destiny of mankind is held firmly in the hand of man. Man wields the sword by which we live and die. Prophecy stands in stark contrast to this. Prophecy points to the author who holds all things and works all things to the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So the prophecy in verse 18 of Jude says, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Jude applies this apostolic prophecy to the false teachers, which shows that he considers them, when this was written, to already be living in the last times. How much more are we? The church needs to remember, not despair, the eschatological signs of God. In the face of scoffers and persecution, we must remember the pre-written words of our God and so place our hope in Him. Verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. I've started timber framing. I bought some chisels, some slicks to work the wood, some saws from Japan. They're really sharp. And this is timber framing is when you, you, you use square lumber you notch it into mortise and tenons, and then they fit together to make the structure of a building. And it's, it's a process of love, because when you're using the slick, it's a really wide chisel, and you slide it across the wood. 
you're taking a sixteenth of an inch away or and the curls just curl off beautifully. You blow them away. And then you do another one. And um, this building yourselves up in the most holy faith is first of all on the foundation that has already been laid. It's on the foundation that was once for all given to the saints, that Jude reminds them. The false teachers are trying to add to it. He says, no, remember, you were given the faith once for all delivered. And this imagery of building is especially relevant to timber framing because at the end, when it all comes together, and you notch, you notch it all together, you pin it, and then it's laying on the ground. And then you call the community. And the community comes, and you get your poles, and you have people lifting it, and other ones pushing it up, and there it goes up a bent, one section. Then you hold it while you put the other ones up and put build this frame, taking the whole community, because they didn't have cranes then. And it, and it takes many people to build this. You could call it a barn raising, but it's kind of crude barn. It's more like an edifice, which comes from an elaborate structure to edify one another. The picture is, a, is an elaborate structure that you're building into one another. And this building in Jude carries with it the, the idea of community. That you're not building yourself only, you're building one another up. It's the picture of the church in Corinthians. Um, the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 23 says, But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each of them as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The third thing that the church is called to is praying in the Holy Spirit. Just at the end of verse 20, it's that building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 describes praying in the Spirit as something we continually do. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Would you turn with me to Romans 8, verse 26? Romans 8.26 describes the Spirit as interceding for us and helping us in our weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, 
For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praying in the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit within us, guiding us and interceding for us unto God. And this is contrasted here in verse 19, where it says that the false teachers didn't have the Holy Spirit. Their dreams, their prayers, their participation in the Lord's Supper, their leadership in the church was not marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so they were described as worldly people who caused division. Jude is saying here that the false teachers are not Christians at all. Moving to verse 21, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. There's a pattern in Jude. Kept, keep, kept. It's a sandwich. You are kept. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You are kept. This is the sandwich. Verse 1 and 24 say that God keeps them and is able to keep them. Verse 21, we're presented with the command to keep ourselves but we have to see it in the, in the context of both the others. Both divine sovereignty and human responsibility are being presented here. Turn with me to John 15, verse 9. John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Notice the motivation is love, to be loved by God. And this is the summons to godly living to obey the commandments and not be pulled away by the teachers and the false teachers who are elevating license, but rather to abide in the vine. So we obey the commandments. God enables us to obey the commandments. Amen. And we know that we are kept. For each one of us will have no reason to boast on the last day. And yet we strive and we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As we come to verses 21 and 23, we're going to see a pattern of mercy. Waiting for mercy and showing mercy. 
Have you ever felt that this world is not your home? Are you tired? We are in a season of waiting. This is not your best life now. We are waiting. We await hearts that will no longer struggle with sin. We await a home that is being prepared for us. And in Jude, we await the coming mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And this waiting is not marked as uncertain, as a criminal before a judge. This waiting is marked with eager expectation because you're so good? No. It's marked with eager expectation because it's grounded on the promises of God. The picture of coming before a king with confidence in the nature of the king to keep his promises. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the promise. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Take that promise as more precious than a gold nugget, and we'll put it in our minds and meditate upon it. He will surely do it. When you're laying on your deathbed, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It's not grounded in you. It's grounded in him. He's faithful, and he will surely do it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's a promise that you are not defined by your past. People want to look up something you did 10 years ago and think that's you. If you're in Christ now, you're a new creation. The old is gone. It's passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this receiving mercy spills over into showing mercy. So we're eagerly waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, we're not hoarding it. We're not hoarding this mercy that we've received now. It's spilling over like a cup. It just can't be contained. It's just all running out the other side. Jude 2, 22, 23 says, 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Those who doubt. This is likely in the church um, part of the congregation that followed the false teachers. The part that was following the dreams and the teaching that the false teachers were placing upon the foundation already once for all delivered. These people have doubted the original faith delivered and followed the leading of wandering stars and waterless clouds. These people are not being provided with the truth of the gospel that leads to life. And Jude doesn't call the church to judge them. Jude calls the church who has received mercy to show mercy. Like the cup, receiving the mercy and it's flowing out the other side to everyone around you. Are we showing mercy to one another? Are we extending grace to one another as we navigate these times? Are we building and supporting one another? Even as we are beloved of God, are we treating our brother and our sister as beloved of God? What if we disagree with them? Or are we divided along the same lines that the world is divided? We're divided on the same lines as the world is divided. We need to be very concerned. Our focus needs to be not where the world draws the line in the sand. It needs to be in the foundation once for all delivered. And these are the things we unite in. Jude has two divisions, the beloved and the ungodly. This is the line in the sand. All these extra ones need to get wiped away in the life of a church. It can be dangerous to show mercy. The picture in verse 23 is literally snatching someone out of the fire. Firefighters call this an IDLH environment, immediately dangerous to life and health. I'm a fireman where I come from on the side. And um, in a basement fire, it's a real IDLH environment, immediately dangerous to life and health, because you're in the old days, you used to go down the stairs to try and put the fire out. And that's the chimney. So all the black smoke is coming up. It's hot. It's not like the movies. You can't see anything. You see about this much in front of your face. And, and, you don't, it's not predictable. The stairs could be 
burnt out. There could be a lot of things that you don't know. The, the ceiling could come down. There's, there's things that you just don't know about that environment. It's dangerous in ways you can't predict ahead of time. And as this is the picture of snatching someone out of the fire, so we ought to treat these situations, certain situations where we show mercy as dangerous. Showing mercy mixed with fear, lest we fall to the same temptations or sin as the person we are saving. Turn with me to Zechariah 3, verse 2. And we're going to see where Jude pulls the imagery of stained clothing and burning brands from. Zechariah 3, 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebukes you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with pure vestments. So we're a church, we're a community. We're building upon the foundation that's been laid. We're reaching into the fire to pull people back from the judgment of God and save them. All the while, not falling to the same things that they're falling to. Don't be proud. Don't think that you can't fall, that you can't sin. But even as we do that, we look to Christ for the strength to, to love us, to call us, and to keep us. So we're not fearful when we're going and snatching people out of the fire. The Greek word for beloved is agape. It wasn't used for pizza. In Matthew 13, 17, it was used for Christ. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Beloved church, beloved son. Mark 12, 6 is a parable. It says, and he, he had still another one, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. 
Beloved of God isn't just a sentimental flippant phrase. It carries with it the power of God to be called and kept. And for assurance of this, we need to look no further than our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was beloved of God and vindicated by God in his resurrection from the dead. He is the first fruits, and we shall be like him. Beloved of God also carries with it the means of grace and mercy. We are awaiting with eager expectation a mercy that is the forgiveness of a debt we could never pay. In our waiting, let us not be found to be unmerciful towards one another. You know well the parable of the unmerciful servant. After this servant was found guilty of merciless judgment on his neighbor, here's what happened. If you don't know the parable, the servant had a debt he couldn't pay to the king. He begged forgiveness, and the king forgave his debt. He went out from there, saw a man that owed him a measly amount, and threw him in prison because he couldn't pay him. The king hears about this, and the response in Matthew 18.32 is this. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I gave you, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the anger, and in, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Where does this heart of mercy come from? Maybe you think it's a work that you can conjure up or you can just wait long enough and the scars will be removed. My wife and I have a policy that we don't go to bed angry. That's impossible on worldly standards. But with God, that is not impossible because time doesn't heal the wounds when you have an argument with somebody. It's the Holy Spirit that heals the wounds. So the wife and I come together can't forgive, can't love, can't reconcile. What can we do? We can pray. And so you pray on your knees, asking the Lord for the heart to forgive. And it happens. Forgiveness comes from God. We forgive others because we've forgiven much. 
And this is all grounded and vindicated in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He's the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. With power. Power to change your heart and the other person's despite them wanting it, or even you wanting it. That's real power. He is the one who is able to present you blameless, who shows us what love is and calls us beloved first, who in fact loved us while we were yet sinners. He is the one who removes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. If you're struggling to show mercy, ask the Lord who gives generously. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I'm going to share a little song with you. It's a song called Exiles, and it's based on Jeremiah 29. And the picture is exiles leaving Jerusalem, going off into exile. Everything they loved is burning behind them. Everything they carelessly loved is burning too, which is a great mercy. And they're being led away into promise that 70 years and you'll return. So if you can, sing the chorus with me. And it goes, we await the day you promise to bring us home. Plans, future, and hope, hearts wholly yours. Seventy years in Babylon, Lord, we're so dry. Living in this foreign country, living in exile life. So, and pain You say build houses plant and pray for my enemy Lord the fire and rain You speak to the storm peace be still Nature listens, nature obeys. And we await the day you promise to bring us home. 
man's future and hope Our hearts wholly yours Seven years in Babylon And Lord, we're so dry Living in a foreign country Living this exile life Lord, the homeless and whore You see the idols that we formed In our flesh Our hearts May our filth be left behind All we've carelessly loved Join the ashes of the city As it burns to the ground And we await the day You promised to bring us home Plans, future and hope our hearts wholly yours Seven years in Babylon And Lord, we're so dry Living in a foreign country Living this exile life Lord, the treacherous and the faithless You dine in our homes, offering a banquet. Lord of the bread and Lord of the wine, you bid us come, dine and die for freedom. Living the sex I like.